0: would serve in office-bearing ministry in the church, and all I want to do is just stop and stare at verses 15 and 16, so the last two verses of chapter 4. Let me read those then for us, and then pray for our time, and we'll begin. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray again. Father, we do ask that you would help us this evening, as we come to such a beautiful text and a simple text, to strike us again by your spirit with the truth. Build up these men that you are bringing before us this evening, that they might be models of godliness, that the very marks of which this text speaks would be true of their lives. Make it true of all of us, we pray, so that we'd be shining examples and growing reflections of the image of Jesus Christ, which you are renewing in us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, many of you know John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, the story of Christian, this man who's making his pilgrimage to the celestial city. And early on in the book, he, become, he comes to this house of interpreter. And as he walks into the entryway, he, he sees something striking. And it grabs his attention. And the book continues by writing, Christian saw the picture of a very grave person. So kids, that means a serious a person. Hung up against the wall. And this was the fashion of it. It had eyes lifted up to heaven. The best of books in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips, the world was behind his back, it stood as if he pleaded with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. And if you've ever read the Pilgrim's Progress, you surely know students that every character represents someone or something significant in the world spiritually. So if you think of that portrait there hanging up against the wall, their interpreter's house, you might ask the similar question that John Bunyan predictably did, well who is that? So who do you think it is that there has God's book in His hand, eyes lifted up to heaven, words of truth written across His lips, countenance of preaching the world behind His back? Of course, it's none other, interpreter says, than a a gospel minister. And what we look at this evening in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy is what is no doubt the most famous portrait of a gospel minister that you're going to find anywhere in God's Word. And it's, of course, a book that's written originally to a man named Timothy, who's Paul's protege in the gospel ministry. He's the pastor of a church there at Ephesus. And this is a book written to Timothy so that he might set things aright there at Ephesus as he's waiting on Paul to show up. And the aim of his charge, chapter 1, verse 5, tells us, is love. And so what I want to do is take what are words and commands originally given to a gospel minister, So in some ways, this most original context speaks most acutely to someone like me, but it's applicable, isn't it, to all of those who are serving in office-bearing ministry in the church, and I want to take it and uniquely apply it to the lives of three men, all men who are in the room this evening, some of whom you know, some of whom you're going to see for the first time perhaps up here on the platform in just a few minutes, that they might understand what God requires of them. As there are once again a few of them joining us in the gospel work here at Redeemer, as one of them is ordained for the first time to join us in the work of the gospel here at Redeemer. But even though it is pretty much a prolonged charge to three particular individuals this evening, I do trust that God will not only write that truth upon their hearts, but He's going to write it upon all of your minds. Because if you're a member here at Redeemer, this is what you need to know God requires, in part, of those who would serve in the gospel ministry, a way in which you can encourage them, a way in which you can pray for them, and of course, students and children, I hope you actually pay attention too, because we should always be praying, shouldn't we, that God is calling someone from our church, literally many from our church that are in the next generation to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and serve perhaps even in ministry. And even students, this may be particularly relevant to you as a time will come, won't it, when you'll be independent from your parents and you're going to move out, I suppose, and you're going to have to find a local gospel preaching church on your own. And you're going to wonder, how is it that I'm going to examine whether or not I should go to this church, that church, or this other church, what you need to recognize is that the pastoral epistles in particular are always calling you to pay attention to the leaders of that church. Because how the leaders go is how the church will go. And so if you glance down again at verse 15 and 16, uh, you might notice that there's like this mirror-like structure going on in both of our two verses. Because each verse has two commands that lead to one consequence. So each verse, two commands... That lead to one consequence and to help us uh, hang the truth of God's word on our hearts. Let me just give two simple hooks, words taken from these two verses. First, we'll see in verse 15, practice Jesus Christ. And verse 16, persist in Jesus Christ. So that's the call to God's men who would minister in the church. Practice Jesus Christ. Persist in Jesus Christ. Notice again the first phrase in verse 15, practice these things actually read this text earlier this week to someone in our church and said, that's what we're going to preach on a Sunday evening. And the response was, that's it? Don't you think it's important to tell them what these things are? I said, well, yeah, of course, we'll give the context to these final verses, because what we're getting into at the end of chapter 4 is what might classically be called a peroration. It's this enthusiastic conclusion to the instruction that's come before. We're jumping in. We're starting our study where Paul is ending his study in many ways. And what he's been doing throughout the chapter, and you can notice it with this one phrase, these things. He's building up an argument for the kind of minister that God wants in his church. So if you just glance down at verse 6, you'll see that Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, and I take that to be what he's just said in verses 1 through 5, Then notice verse 11, command and teach these things, which most likely means what he's just said in verse 6 through 10. So then when we get to verse 15 in our text, then practice these things. That phrase he has in mind there with these things is probably just what's come before in verse 12, 13, and 14. So what has Paul just said? What's to be the practice of those men in the church? Well, notice verse 12 and 13 in particular. Let no one despise you for your youth. Uh, We don't know exactly how old Timothy was, as best we can tell, given the understanding of youth at the time, especially as it relates to gospel ministry. He's probably in his early 30s at this time, and culturally and sociologically speaking, many in in the church there at Ephesus, as they looked at Timothy, they would have been prone maybe to look down on him, because he's young. And the command is, don't let anyone look down on you for your youth, verse 12 continues, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and in faith and in purity, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So you could say then, what men are to practice in the church, what ordained servants are to practice in the church, is nothing other than the spiritual fruits of Jesus Christ. They're to practice also declaring the spiritual word of Jesus Christ, reading it, teaching it, exhorting through it. But it's not just that. Verse 14, notice, is talking about this spiritual ordination that Timothy has received. Paul commands further, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. So, when you see in just a few minutes the council of elders here at Redeemer, lay hands on a man, well, the reason we do that is because of what verse 14 of 1 Timothy 4 says. It's this official setting apart of a man spiritually for the work of the gospel among a particular people and even you glance out of that text again it's telling us that Timothy there probably uniquely most certainly uniquely it was there by words of prophecy he received this gift this grace to serve as the pastor of the church at Ephesus but importantly you'll see in verse 14 he's not to neglect this calling that he's given him and if you have ever read through first Timothy Ever read through 2 Timothy? Uh, you realize that the church there at Ephesus that Timothy pastored was a church full of struggles and troubles. But don't neglect the calling that's been given to you. Perhaps even the language of verse 15. Practice the calling that's been given to you amidst the struggles and the troubles of life there at Ephesus. And of course many of you know, don't you, that every local church has struggles and troubles. Redeemer Presbyterian Church has struggles And troubles. And it's for these men, these brothers coming to us tonight, to practice the gospel given to them, the spirit entrusted to them through the struggles and the troubles, practice these things. is the command that comes first in verse 15. I remember about 20 years ago when a well-known NBA athlete at the time, he was probably something akin to the most valuable player that year. was once in a press room, and the press was kind of asking him about his practice habits that were rather notorious, largely for their laziness. And they were kind of mystified how he could practice that way and perform so well. And he got to a point of of frustration, and he went on this rant about practice that became something of a classic in the NBA world. He was just saying, practice. We're talking about practice. Don't we need to talk about games, outcomes, victories, when it really matters? But those of you that have any awareness or have participated in athletics before, you probably had a good coach that said, how you practice is how you're going to play. And Paul says, you must practice well in this ministry. You must practice these things. Absorb yourself in them is really what he's saying. Notice the second command of verse 15, immerse yourself in them. So kids, if you think about the image of something being immersed, you could take like a stone or a rock, for example, and think of it dropping, being dropped into a pond. And suddenly, of course, the water immerses that rock. It's totally enveloped. It's totally surrounded by the water. But that's actually not really what the idea of this word has in the original because it comes from the verb to be. More literally, what the text is saying, be in these things. Be in the spiritual fruits. Be in the Word of the Spirit. It's to be all-encompassing. It's to be all-enveloping. And you'll see the point, the consequence of these two commands. Notice the end of verse 15, so that all may see your progress. So that all may see your progress. So you could circle that last word in verse 15 and think about two things that we should presume It communicates to us regarding progress because Paul seems to presume at least two things in his instruction here. Number one, he presumes longevity in ministry, a noticeable longevity. You can't see progress, can you, if you're not with a people for a distinct amount of time. It certainly is true in many of our churches today that sometimes it's difficult to get going a long way into deep faithfulness because there's these starts and fits of leaders coming and going in the life of the church. And if we were ever to see progress in the leaders in our church, we must see longevity in the leaders in our church. But I do think it's speaking, one, not just of presuming upon noticeable longevity. But more importantly, is number two, it's, it's noticeable maturity. Noticeable maturity. I remember the first Sunday when I was pastor here at Redeemer some three plus years ago. And not long after the service ended, I was speaking with a church member who was expressing some relatively profound disappointment in my leadership of the previous service. And it was because I had forgotten to say something in the liturgy. And I said, you know, with hope, a smile on my face, just take it as the first of I assume countless times you're going to learn your pastor isn't perfect. And it's true, isn't it, that Nate, Jensen, and Ty aren't perfect. They're never going to be perfect. You are never going to be perfect. I am never going to be perfect. But the command here is one of progress, isn't it? So, Jensen, Ty, coming back on the diaconate after something of a sabbatical for various periods of time. Shouldn't it be true that your service now in this term shows noticeable progress from your previous terms of service? Progress in humility. Progress in holiness, gentleness, and the truth. Nate being ordained this evening, we trust that by God's spirit should Lord tarry and allow us to continue in faithfulness that the months of 2022 would show progress beyond the months of 2021. And even the word progress is a quite interesting one. It's this compound word that essentially means chopping down. And you can think of that imagery. It's the idea of to advance in Jesus Christ, you must always be chopping down. You must be slaying the impediment, impediments that are in front of you. That you would advance into greater degrees of godliness. So there's a question for all of you in here tonight. I wonder what weeds, tares, what tree trunks, branches might stand in the way. These things of sin that you need to chop down. That you might... Practice Jesus Christ, and in so doing, show your progress. So God's word to leaders in the church, number one, is practice Jesus Christ, and number two, it's persist in Jesus Christ, in verse 16. Um, Today just happens to be the 129th anniversary of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's death. The famed preacher, prince of preachers in England in the late 19th century, and among his uh, many uh, venerable associations and Endeavors that he pursued, one of the most long-lasting in its fruit was his pastor's college, where he would train men for the ministry. And it was his delight, and with a great degree of regularity, he would lecture to those students on the nature of gospel ministry. And those lectures have been collected into a book. It remains my, my personal favorite of all Spurgeon's writings. And it's called Lectures to My Students. And the very first lecture is titled, The Minister's Self-Watch. And it's a title that comes from the very next phrase in our text. Notice verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Kids, your your parents may have communicated to you recently the significance and importance of watchfulness. Perhaps they've said, hey, keep an eye on your brother or, or watch your sister for a few minutes. And there's this urgency, I trust, and and responsibility in what they have given to you. And that kind of urgency and responsibility now the Lord is saying belongs to His ordained servants in the church. That there's to be this watchfulness in two particular areas, right? Watch yourself and watch the teaching. And you hopefully know as well as I do that many people that serve in the church, certainly all Christians even, professing believers, tend to be better at one of those than the other. Sometimes we can be very good at majoring in watching ourselves but we minor in watching the teaching. Or perhaps it's the other way around, we major in watching the teaching but we minor in in watching ourselves. And sometimes, historically at least in our context, it's often been understood, given an older translation of these words, it's, it's the command to watch yourself and the doctrine or watch your life and the doctrine, so you need to watch what your heart is doing and pay attention to what your mind is learning. But if you glance down again at verse 16, you'll notice that we get this definite article in that second phrase of the teaching. It's a pretty technical term. It's not just the doctrine as much as it is declarations of the doctrine, which is the meat, it's the marrow of Timothy's ministry. So if you wanted to translate it in a way that kind of communicates more in our context, what he's saying there is, take heed to your life and to your labor as you serve in the church. And certainly... For those brothers coming in just a few minutes, there can be a tendency to stare at your labor intensely, evaluating and examining everything you're doing for the Lord and forget that you should be staring just as intensely at your heart and your soul before the Lord, or perhaps it's the other way around. You can stare so intensely, can't you, at your soul's condition, its struggles, its victories that you forget to actually get going in your labor before the Lord, Pay attention, he says. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. You see the second command in verse 16 is persist in this. Persist in this. It actually means more literally, stay put. Like a watchman on a tower must stay put, always looking in the midst of a potential battle for danger on the horizon. So too must an ordained servant always be watching his life and his labor. It reminds me of this story told of the great Scottish preacher and theologian, In the 17th century, named Samuel Rutherford. One day he was preaching in his church and he was preaching on a controversial text, as Samuel Rutherford was prone to do. And eventually, near the end of the sermon, he started preaching about Jesus Christ from that controversial text, which Samuel Rutherford was also prone to do. And when he started preaching about Jesus Christ, there was this one old man that shouted from the back of the room, I'm sure in great deep Scottish brogue, I hold you right there, minister. You're okay right there. Stay there. Persist in Jesus Christ. And you'll see how these two commands also give one consequence. Look at the end of verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I hope you understand the significance then of faithfulness in the gospel ministry nothing less than salvation, Paul says in this text, rides on the faithfulness of his servants in the church. And it might seem a little bit weird if you just glance down at verse 16. How do you reckon that with the reality that, of course, Jesus Christ is the only one who can save? He's the only name under heaven by which anyone might find salvation. But Paul is saying here, not that Timothy is a savior of the people at Ephesus, any more than Jesus when he commissioned Paul in Acts Chapter 26, verse 18 says, Go preach to the Gentiles, and you, Paul, open their eyes to the light from the darkness. All that he is saying here is that holy servants, ministering God's holy word, is the ordinary means for salvation. Holy servants, ministering God's holy word, is the ordinary means of salvation. So, take heed is what? He says, and in his lecture, that first one I mentioned, the minister self-watch, Spurgeon gets to a point where he quotes from this famous book, this manual on ministry called The Reformed Pastor, which says this about our text this evening, take heed to yourselves, lest you should be void of that saving grace of God which you offer to others. And lest while you proclaim the necessity of a Savior to the world, your hearts should neglect Him, Take heed, therefore, to yourselves first, that you be what you persuade others to be, that you believe what you persuade others daily to believe." Practice Jesus Christ. Persist in Jesus Christ. These are God's words to those who would lead and serve in His church. I remember several months ago, I came home to a rather stunning array of painted owls on a table in our house, and whatever abilities Emily and I have, hand-drawn art is not one of them, so I inquired about these painted owls, and Emily told me that an activity she and the kids had done this afternoon was pulling up YouTube and from a, an expert artist using this model learn how to paint owls. And it was actually quite surprising how good all the owls came out to be from all of our children. It was signaling that there is this reality of when you see the model, it does make a difference. And what we find over and over in the pastoral epistles, most beautifully here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, is that God's ordained servants in the life of the church are to be models of godliness. They are given to the church in part, yes, to preach, to shepherd, to serve... But in a part we dare not forget and dare not underemphasize, they're meant to be models, molds of godliness. And it's clear enough if you just glance back up to verse 12, when he uses the language of set an example, it's the language of a model. It's the language of a mold around which something is shaped. So you three brothers that are coming in just a few minutes, you're to be models of godliness before this congregation, which leads me to two final thoughts. Well, what God's church needs, number one, is sanctification showing men. God's church needs sanctification showing men. Men who are immersed in Jesus Christ. Men who are practicing Jesus Christ. Given over to the ministry of the word for the sake of Christ's church. Diligently watching at all times. Taking heed to themselves and to the teaching. That they might find salvation flowing into the life of that church. Which leads to the second point. God's church doesn't need just salvation showing men. I'm sorry, sanctification showing men, but also God's church needs salvation longing men. Because there can be this imbalance, can't there? As I already mentioned, you pay attention maybe to your life, but not your labor. The gospel ministry is little more than seeing sinners saved and saints sanctified. You have sanctification in the text, you have salvation in the text, and we as leaders in the church dare not pursue any sort of imbalanced ministry in those ways. John Owen once said that ministers are seldom honored with success unless they are constantly aiming at the conversion of sinners. Uh, what we need are leaders, servants, and yes, church members who are always about the business of growing in Christ, going with Christ, models of godliness given that the church might grow in holiness. So whenever you hear texts like this, and certainly if you're anything like me, whenever you read texts like this, of which there are more than you might imagine in Scripture, the demands, immense, weighty demands that God places upon His leaders. Uh, What tends to often happen is Satan quickly condemns you. Your conscience accuses you for who is worthy of such a calling? For has it not often happened that our own sin means we distort that model of godliness. We somehow mar that image of holiness that's supposed to be reflecting from us. So it's true that God has given His ordained servants to be models of godliness for the church. But isn't it even more blessed to realize that He's given His only Son to be models of godliness, the model of godliness for the church, that His grace is sufficient for your shortcomings in your ministry, that His mercy is mightier than your weaknesses, in the ministry. So when it comes to the words that are necessary for anyone who's going to serve in Christ's church, you don't need much more than the great exhortation of looking to Jesus Christ from a heart of love, that you might practice Jesus Christ and so show your progress in sanctification, that you might persist in Jesus Christ and so show find salvation flowing into the life of God's people. These are words, aren't they, for those who would lead and serve in God's church. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us, all of us, in the various ways in which we serve, in the various ways in which we lead, in the various ways in which we participate in the life of this church, to root ourselves in Jesus Christ. May it be our joy to practice His holiness to persevere in His holiness and His truth. Lord, we want to be a people that knows the joy and delight of what it means to love Christ from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience, so that the aim of this church will always be that of love. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.